As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. With us around a table, Amy was Silverman. No idea if you went to First Republic. When rates bottom, but, no. but great to have you with us. <laughs> yeah, congratulations. Head of derivatives strategy at RBC Capital Markets. You've got a great phrase in your notes, Amy. And wonderful to see you in person, by Good the way. Good to see you guys. You said this, the paddling duck market. What's that? That's the market we're in right now. I mean, we got this chill, cool duck uh, hanging out on the surface, furiously paddling underneath, and, and that's the equity volatility bid. You know, we don't see it in VIX. Headline VIX is really low, right? But the reality is VIX call open interest, that demand for volatility going higher, is at all-time highs. I'm, I'm speaking with Nassim Taleb in like three or four weeks, and we'll go to the tails immediately, and you make it real clear in your note that there's a tail irregularity here. Everybody's focused on the left tail. Tell me about the right tail, the tail of optimism. Yeah, so the tail of optimism does not exist. You know, I, I've been visiting kind of clients in Europe and Canada and the U.S., consensus bearishness across the board. It's really overwhelmingly uh, so. And so you get to this point where you have to ask, you know, the right tail is so underpriced. Is there a possibility of a congressional miracle? Who knows? But right now, folks are pricing that this is going to be a very tumultuous debt ceiling. If it at all comes in a little bit easier than we expect, that that right tail is very cheap. Well, this is actually going against the consensus in a big way. People have come on the show again and again and said nobody is pricing actually a debt ceiling uh, debacle where you end up with some sort of default, except perhaps in the uh, one month T-bill market. Are you saying that's not true, that it's actually aggressively being priced in the equity world? Yeah. So so here's the nuance, Lisa. What is happening is essentially the volatility market is saying the tail has to wag the dog first, meaning we have to see action in the equity market, which means a drawdown, before we see some sort of action in Congress. Does that mean an actual default? Maybe not. But it's definitely going to be 11th hour, 2011 type style. And if you actually plot the VIX right now against what the VIX looked like in 2011, it was right around here in 2011. And then we saw that it peaked around 50 in August, and it sustainably was above 30. And I think that's what these bets in the market are saying right now. They think we're going to get back there. 
I love this idea that the common the market is people not willing to make a move by selling what they own, but they're doing it all through derivatives. So based on pairing those two, what is the most underpriced reality right now? Is it this upside surprise or is it something else? The most underpriced reality right now is the idea that this debt ceiling situation actually gets resolved quicker and easier than we think. That is not what is being priced in the market. Folks are very, very well prepared for a debacle. And so if we don't get it, it would be very interesting to see all these hedges roll off. You know, that is not being priced. Sometimes there's a big difference between ideas and execution. And it frustrates people at home. And you speak to those people, those people in the market. If I wanted to position for a so-called up crash your language, the language other people use as well, before I get the downdraft and the tension? Because ultimately we're acknowledging, and you've alluded to it, that you need to get the crisis before you get the solution or get very close to the crisis before you get the solution. Can you talk to me about how you execute that trade? Do you wait to position to capture that upside when you start to see some of the drama take place or can you position for it now? Yeah, you know, and that's the tricky part. I think right now it becomes, look, if we get the drawdown, right, so the, the market move happens a little bit, then that up crash scenario becomes a little bit more expensive because we've already taken that down hit. So in some ways, you do have to start placing it right now. The good news is it's relatively inexpensive. One of the reasons, and I've, I've been saying this to investors, the reason VIX looks so low isn't because S&P puts are cheap. It's because S&P calls are cheap, and those are both weighted in the VIX. That's part of the reason you see that being subdued. So if you own that right tail, just say owning S&P calls, you know, that's inexpensive right now. And that would happen if, you know, we get closer to that X date and actually there is a resolution, you know, Biden flies home and these folks get actually their feet on the ground and do something. That would be quite interesting. Every crash in the hindsight is about opacity. I didn't see it coming. It was a mystery. The cliches, the shadows and that 1987, 1998, etc. What's the biggest mystery for you right now? Where's the dearth of information? To me, the most fragile part of this market, Tom, is this problem of breadth. So one thing I looked at that I think is really interesting is if you just take S&P consensus price target on mm -hmm. Apple right now, that, that sharp ratio is negative on Apple, meaning you're actually better off in cash if you assume expected rate of return of the S&P, of the uh, Apple price target, than you are in Apple. The breadth of the market is so heavily weighted and it's very fragile. Is that sharp ratio adjusted because of the velocity of the risk-free rate? You know, we had no risk-free rate for three years. We all exactly. got old doing it and pop, there's the, sh there's the risk-free rate tumbling. Do you have an accurate risk-free rate? Do you have a, is there a belief, do you have a belief institutionally in a risk-free rate forward? Yeah, so we're assuming a risk-free rate right now of just you know what what we're getting on on cash right now. So obviously that could go down. But if you just take from last year to this year, it going from about one percent to almost five percent across the board. Right. Obviously all equity sharp ratios decline, but also yeah. your forward-looking price targets are declining. I just want to follow up on one thing that you said, where you said it's very fragile because of a very very narrow depth. How much does that suggest to a downside shock versus an upside shock? Or does it not matter? It just suggests there will be a break one way or another and it will be significant. I think the biggest thing to watch right now is if the market decides that mega cap tech is not a safe haven because you could actually get financials ripping or industrials ripping and it wouldn't matter on an S&P level. You could actually see the index level trade down, right? Because the heavyweights are the ones selling off. And that's what I think is very interesting about this market is you could get that turn because maybe recession fears aren't as bad as expected, but the reality is the market's actually selling off. The action happens beneath the surface. Most crowded trades, B of A, in the survey. What were the indications? 
Short banks, long, long tech. tech. Top two traits. Top two traits identified by people in that survey right, example. And the lack of breadth is what the phrase I use, choice set. There's no choice set out there now. I couldn't run a prospectus-structured institutional portfolio, John, because you have to have X number of ideas in the portfolio, and there's not enough ideas out there right now. I just think this is fascinating, this idea that you could get a better than expected economic shift, well, whether it's the debt ceiling or whether it's data, and all of a sudden you end up with index level losses because everyone yeah. floods out of the very narrow range of stocks that have really been driving all the gains. I mean, Amy's with us for the entire hour. We got to talk to her about the scenario <laughs> here coming out of an Ed Hyman 2.8% inflation. No one's prepared for that. And nobody told Amy about that. I can tell by her face. I'm just trying to suggest it. You know. Amy, thank you. Thank it's wonderful you. to see you. Great to see you in person. Amy with Silverman there of RBC Capital Markets. Right now, to drive us forward in Washington, if I was to say all this, it would be, well, maybe, Tom, that's off the mark. But when Libby Cantrell writes about pearl clutching in Washington, you pay attention. It's Mikamoto double A's and Tiffany Strands of Pearls down there. I love how you do that. <laughs> pearl clutching in Washington. Is Margaret is Chase of, Smith, yes. the ghost of Margaret Chase Smith down there yeah, exactly. clutching the pearls right now? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there. I think there. there's been quite a lot of... Uh, Hysteria, uh, pearl clutching, if you will, regarding the debt ceiling. But you know, our view, and I think to your or your earlier conversation, certainly the mood music is positive. We would argue the mood, mood, mood music has been actually quite positive for for quite a while. Um, I think the contours of a deal are absolutely there. The details just need to be f filled in. The fact that they have. Shalanda Young, Steve Ricchetti, these people are serious sort of adults in the room. Um, they are going to be the president's proxy while, while he's in Japan. And um, I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't see a deal by this weekend. I mean, I think that the, wow. I, I think a deal is imminent. I actually don't think it's going to necessarily require uh, the equity market or equity vol uh, like we've seen in, in previous debt ceiling. That seems to be the conclusion of so many people though on Wall Street. You need to get close to a crisis before you get a solution. Why are you taking a slightly different well, view of things? Well, again, and, and John, I've just been looking at the political incentives here for several months, and nobody has any sort of political incentive to even get that close to default. I mean, if you look at sort of uh, Speaker McCarthy's hand, I mean, he doesn't necessarily have a very strong hand going into these negotiations. He only has a, a four-seat majority, meaning he can only actually just lose five uh, members uh, in, in order to, to, uh, to sort of stay along with this, this deal. Um, and, you know, I think very importantly here, uh, your President Biden has been, you know, now open to negotiation. So I think there's sort of the if you just sort of look at the kind of political landscape here, um, the, the bottom line is that a deal will get done. And I think, again, sort of in advance of the X date and to Tom's earlier point, the X date is real here. And I think this is where <laughs> Secretary Yellen has now kind of corroborated the, her earlier estimate of June 1st. I mean, tax receipts are, are quite weak, not only because of personal income taxes, but because of this sort of disaster zone um, uh, dynamic, as particularly in California, where a lot of folks are actually not having to file their taxes. And so uh, that is going to be delayed receipts to, to the government. So, uh, you know, we think that the X state has to be taken seriously. And we think members of Congress are also taking it seriously. So all this is all a long way of saying that despite the pearl clutching, uh, as one staffer said, passing the debt ceiling is like passing a kidney stone. We all know it will pass. It's just a question of how difficult it will be. Sorry for the graphic uh, analogy. <laughs> Sounds pretty but, brutal. But, but that is, but that I think has been our our operating assumption and is the market's operating assumption right now as well. The paddling duck is going to pass Giddy's this morning. It's been quite something. One of the reasons why I love speaking with you, Libby, is
is because you have incredible experience working on Capitol Hill. You understand the political wranglings that go into getting this done. What do you think the contours of this deal will look like? What changes will really take place? Well, look, I think very importantly is sort of the semantics here. So President Biden will characterize this as a budget deal associated with fiscal 24 spending, uh, where Speaker McCarthy will characterize this as a debt ceiling deal. I would say that's a distinction without a difference and from, from a market's perspective. But what we're expecting is that there will be some rescission of the COVID, unspent COVID money. That's not very much. It's about $40, 50000000000 billion, but it still kind of helps from a deficit perspective. Uh, we also expect some sort of down payment on energy permitting reform. That's something actually important both for Republicans and for Democrats. So that arguably could be a win for both. And then importantly, some sort of spending caps. Now, this is going to be where the devil's in the details, because uh, of course, if you remember 2011, there was a Budget Control Act as, a re- as it related to the debt ceiling, and the market sold off because they were expecting big spending cuts uh, and sort of fears of recession and what have you. We do not expect significant spending cuts to be associated with this deal, but we could see a slower growth of spending, and that could also help these budget, these deficit forecasts. There's kind of an irony here. If the market is expecting volatility and expecting to have to respond eventually and not expecting a deal, do you expect market volatility in response to a deal that you see as soon as this weekend? Well, look, I think that we have to talk about which market we're talking about, uh, because, of course, the fixed income market, which where, where PIMCO uh, manages most of its assets, has has reacted, right? Uh, there has been a dislocation in the Treasury bill market. There's been a big risk aversion around the bills that have expired closer to the to the X state. We saw that in the auction uh, most, most recently in terms of the yields. And so we already are seeing some dislocation in the fixed income market. Um, but to the, the market that most people refer to, the equity market, yeah, we haven't seen that. And and actually, we could see, I think, a, relief, a little bit of a relief rally as well, even from here, because some of this sort of right. anxiety and uncertainty, I think, has been priced in to a, to a small extent. And I think if a deal is sooner than folks expect, it was pulled forward, I actually think you could see a, a bit of a, uh, of a relief. Don't relief tell rally. your work with the PIMCO call in Newport. The idea that we're at a 5 percent general statement on short term paper. Do you guys believe we're coming in, yields will come in and frankly benefit Washington as well, where 5% becomes, say, 3.8% cash well, yield? Yeah, so I think that our, you know, our view in general in terms of, of the Fed and the economy is that uh, the threshold for the Fed to cut is going to be high. Uh, we think that the Fed is going to have to see sustained economics uh, a sustained economic slowdown before they uh, before they start cutting. So I think we we disagree a bit with where the market pricing is, and um, you know even what what CEO Jamie Dimon said today. Um, with that said, though, we are expecting, and I think you had Tiffany on your uh, show yesterday. We are expecting a mild sort of slowdown at the end of this year. Um, at which point, we do think the Fed will likely respond. But again, the threshold for them to get off of you know, around five-ish or what have you, is going to be quite high. So they're going to have to see a a sustained economic slowdown. A couple of bad jobs numbers is probably not going to do it. When was the last time we got to do this? Sit around a table so together, nice. living. How many right. years has this it's been? Like the, so in nice. the last two weeks, and this it's is just started to pick back up. I've said that a few times yeah. this morning. It's happening. Let's go. People are back getting back to the office. Are yeah. people getting back to the office there? I mean, we've been never back. left. We, we've been back for a very long time. <laughs> yeah, yes. Never left. We never left. Thank you, John. That is actually correct. Louis, thank you. <laughs> Louis Cantrell of PIMCO. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. 
Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Debt limit talks between President Biden and congressional leaders intensifying. Mike Schumacher of Wells Fargo and the team have got this to say at the moment. Our economics team is sceptical that a sweeping debt ceiling agreement will be reached over the next month to suspend the debt ceiling for one to two years. A short-term punt, Tom, I think that's a kick the can, that buys more time for an eventual sweeping agreement is the higher probability outcome in their view. Shorter version, TK, we're going to be playing this game for a while. Maybe. Yeah, we're going to have to see a punt there, John. It's American football. Mm. That's when you're down three downs and the fourth down you can't. Is that the guy that comes on just to kick the ball? Just to kick the ball high up and sort of rugby like. They used to have a rule he could be hit by the people coming in, but now they have rules to protect him. Okay, so literally the only thing he's good at is just kicking the ball. Yeah. Nice. The punter, we call that. Generally, goalkeepers would love that job. They, they would. Ex-Premier League goalkeepers would find that so easy. It's a CIS sports report. It continues in this <laughs> block as well. Saving us right now, Michael Schumacher joins us, Global Head of Macro Strategy at Wells Fargo. The courage is defined in your research note, Mike, is that you are long duration. You're saying get out there, own bonds, yields will move lower. Discuss, given the debt uh, ballet in Washington. Yeah, the debt ceiling, time. it's tiresome, but it's not going away quickly in our view. And we still look for the market to panic a bit more. It's interesting. You can talk about the market, but it's really the markets here. So the Treasury bill market's in full-throated panic mode right now. You've got yields on May bills that are low threes, yields on June bills that are called medium fives. So an enormous gap there. But Treasury bonds, 10-year Treasury, 350 neighborhood, it's been there for a while. The equity market's sort of plugging along. Foreign exchange is puzzling to us. We think the yen should be a big beneficiary. And oh, by the way, implied volatilities for currencies are low. So it seems like the Treasury bill market at this point is the only one that's really panicking and the rest are saying, ah, it'll get worked out. Don't sweat it. What on a year year basis is long duration? Is long duration five years or is it 12 years? Or dare I say it's an Austrian pre-sought 50 years? What's long duration? (laughs) No, we're not going Austrian here. Let's keep it to call it the tenure. And the reason I say that Certainly, it's the benchmark, but when people want to move a lot of risk globally, that's where they go. They go to the 10-year part of the U.S. curve pretty consistently, tons of liquidity. So you want to think about some numbers, 352 and change on the 10-year yield right now. If things go really badly, if Thelma and Louise can't figure out quite where the cliff is and go over it, maybe you're looking at 3%, something like that. I certainly hope it doesn't happen, Mm -hmm. but it seems like it's pretty low cost right now to insure against that risk. I keep thinking about this paddling duck market that Amy Silverman was talking about because uh, it seems very difficult to get our hands around with respect to the debt ceiling and then some of these company profits that are uh, coming out, these company earnings that are coming out. As we get retail sales, I'm wondering if you could weigh in on Paul Donovan's point that companies are really expanding their profit margins and consumers are only just now starting to push back and that that's a significant driver of inflation. How much is that really what you're seeing as well? 
Yeah, it's really interesting, Lisa. And we think, we characterize inflation right now as stubborn, globally. And you think about it country after country. Canadian data came in hot yesterday. Recently, Australia hiked, surprised the markets. You look at the UK, inflation data are pretty unpleasant, especially on the wage side. In the US, I'd make a similar argument. So yes, inflation's come down. Has it come down nearly as quickly as the central bankers would like to see? No. And I think that's to your point that you still have pricing pressure for a lot of companies. What does it mean for markets? It means a lot of these rate cuts get priced out. And maybe some of the central banks have another hike. Maybe you see a few more surprises. But the idea of a lot of rate cuts doesn't make sense to us. Now, I just said get long duration. It flies in the face of that argument. But it's really a timing thing. Long duration until the debt ceilings resolve. Then you focus much more on inflation. How much should you actually just go into some of these companies, though, with pricing power? If they're able to expand their margins, it doesn't really matter a lot of the other uh, potential issues because they're still able to make bank because consumers aren't pushing back that much. I'm going to leave the more of the earnings discussion to my colleague, Chris Harvey. But when you think about it from a macro perspective, it does point to more inflation as far as we're concerned. That's the big takeaway I've been focusing on recently. I, I look, Mike, at where we are in May. And what it just simply comes down to is we're all baffled in a tight collared range. How do you know when the collar's over in which way a given vector goes? What's your experience on that? Yeah, we can see gappy types of moves, Tom. We've seen it a few times this year, certainly around the Silicon Valley Bank. And I'll give you an example. So dollar yen was 136, yep, exactly. 137, something like that on March 8th. Call it went to 130. So call it a 4 to 5% move. That's a big move. Not as big as the types of move we had last year, but they were more secular. But something like that that happens in a week or two in a super liquid market, that tells me we fit the boiling point. We're not there yet. I think it could happen. I think those price points are probably about right. right. So debt ceiling goes really astray. Yen moves another 5% strengthening versus the dollar. That's the kind of thing I look at. Finally got those results from TJX. Let's get to them. Mike Schumacher, thank you, sir. As always on a bond market from Wells Fargo. Mike Schumacher there. Michael Gapin joins us now, head of economics at Bank of America. Uh, securities, I like the idea of the last resort. They really don't want to cut rates. What does history tell us about when they do cut rates? History would tell you that uh, like the housing sector would bounce back quickly. All the sectors that have been in trouble recently would, would bounce back strongly. Um, but uh, history tells you the Fed's cutting rates for a reason. They're either achieving their goals on the inflation side in this case, or there's been a stronger downturn in the economy and policy is shifting towards helping activity recover. So typically when the Fed cuts, there, there's a reason for, for them to, to be cutting. They keep pushing back on market expectations for mm -hmm. cuts. And Andrew Hollenhorst of Citigroup has kind of been out alone saying that this Fed is completely underestimating how much the inflation is out there and they need to keep hiking even potentially in June. Do you see that as an increasing likelihood based on the data that we've been getting? Yes, we've been saying that a hike in June can't be fully ruled out. There's obviously a lot of hurdles we need to get over uh, to, to make that decision, but I would still put a hike in June or July at kind of the 30 to 40% range that the, the data on net is still still pretty strong. The Fed has an upward bias, and if it, it, it probably needs to see two to three months worth, worth of evidence to make that decision. Uh, June is a pause at the moment, but certainly I think you, can, you could get to a hike in June. I think you can certainly get to one in July if you felt you needed to. 
As Tom described this market and this economy as excruciating, he is not wrong. I'll give you an example. We get these retail earnings, home goods, mm -hmm. clearly seeing a downdraft, people not buying home goods as much, whether it's Home Depot or TJ Maxx. But then if you look at makeup, if you look at food, if you look at services, that's all continuing to, uh, to blossom. And even these companies pass along price increases. Can a rolling recession in different industries like this prolong the type of inflation that we have seen far beyond what people have currently expected? Yes, I think so. That And the Fed is, we all know the Fed's not out there saying, oh, we need to engineer a recession to break the back of inflation, right? They're saying we need to lean against the wind. Uh, so it's not all up to us. And and so we're, we're just trying to put policy in a, quote, modestly restrictive stance. That means you can get, I think, rolling slowdowns across certain parts of the economy where any downturn would look more, say, U-shaped than it would V-shaped. And so you get a, a wide dispersion in the data where some spending on lodging, for example, looks like it's peaked. Airlines are a bit mixed, but spending in things uh, like cruise ships or travel abroad is, is still strong. So the reopening phases, the normalization of spending uh, makes a lot of this data look you know, really at odds at, at certain points in time. So it's, it's possible yeah. you, could, you could see that continue for some time. You studied in school, Michael, that statistics for the modern age started about 1947. And one of those series that we have in the Bloomberg and Chairman Greenspan loved it, was the all-in augmented unemployment rate, which is 6.3% at right now. It's a gloomier statistic and, you know, it speaks a lot to the tension of unemployment. We are 2.2 standard deviations to fully employed on that statistic going back 60, 70 years. It's a fully employed America, Correct. right? Yes. I mean, statistically, statistically we're fully speaking, employed. Yes. Yes. Why are we talking about cutting interest rates? I, I'm well, baffled by this. We're not. <laughs> um, I don't think the Fed is either. So I think you're you're in a situation where some sort of they they land this right and you get a higher for longer outlook. Um, but I think in general the 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 need or the desire or the the want for for cuts sooner than later is is a little misplaced. There are certainly paths to get those cuts. I'm just not sure they're as right. close to baseline as people are thinking. I mean, Lisa, what's so important here about the oddity of a pandemic and, you know, all the other dynamics we talk about all day is people like Michael Gapin with huge credibility and earned credibility are looking at, quote, other factors involved. And we want Jerome Powell to fix our other factors involved. And he doesn't have the tools to do that. It's, no. it's completely irresponsible. So there's there's that issue. And then there's also the other factors involved when it comes to the actual pricing and markets for rate cuts, which include most people saying probably they're not going to cut rates this year. But if there is some sort of crisis, you could get some pretty dramatic cuts. Is the economy that you're watching with the labor market as tight as it is with this feeling that consumers are continuing to be able to spend less perhaps vulnerable to the shocks that people have been worried about all year long in their frustrated, anxious states? <laughs> uh, well, the economy certainly has shown great resilience, and you're, you're right. There are there's spillovers from debt limits. There's concerns about regional bank funding models and so forth. And yeah, those could propagate in ways that are very unhealthy for the economy. But it, you know that's unlikely. And the, the data shows that the stress in the regional banks appears manageable. Uh, to your point, though, I, I'd also I'd just like to affirm or amplify what you said. The Fed isn't here to fix everybody's problems, and and Fed hiking cycles cause pain in certain parts of of the economy. That's true. That's been that's been true in every tightening cycle, and you need that in order to bring inflation down. So in some ways, 
we're a little bit bipolar. We know we, we want the Fed to raise rates to moderate activity to bring inflation down. We all know that's good for the economy in the long run. But when, when the pain of that shows up, we all want the Fed to run to the rescue and, and fix our own individual market. That's not what the Fed's there for. So I want to bring to you something that we heard yesterday from Austin Goolsby, who was talking about immaculate disinflation. Mm-hmm. He said that people who try to uh, talk down that concept of immaculate disinflation are perhaps fooling themselves because there was an immaculate inflation. And so there, yes, there could be immaculate disinflation. That's actually part of what we're seeing. What would you say to that? I'd say that's part of the story. Uh, so if you go back and you, and you think that some of this was excess demand and some of it was a supply shock, the, the immaculate disinflation can come from cleaning up the supply, the adverse supply shocks and the resumption of, of normal supply. That should help bring inflation down on its own. But to Tom's point, the, the labor market is as tight as it's been in, in my lifetime. If the labor market's cooled down, it's cooled down from exceptionally hot to as tight as it was in the past prior cycle highs. Uh, so there I think you, you know, you, you're not going to, it's unlikely to get immaculate disinflation uh, when you're trying to reverse that. So it's a, it's a mixed story. Michael, I want you to look at the global purview of Bank of America, the great work that you and Ethan Harris are doing. And that is I see unsettlement. I see the Turkish election with Turkish lira coming out, obviously weaker lira with the uncertainty out two weeks. I see Argentina where the blue dollar Argentina peso is something you and I have never witnessed. You've done this at the IMF as well. This morning we have Ecuador dissolving their parliament. There's just seemed to be that early 1998 tension out there, little butterflies flapping, if you will, to use a worn out cliche. Do you sense that at Bank of America? Not yet. I would add maybe the the election outcomes in Thailand, for example. Is yes, a, I'm is sorry. A, is a, I no, no, it's, no yeah. but it's a it's a good point that there is a series of elections where there's been some surprises and still some momentum in in populist candidates. The message there is still one of potential change and and say an unsettled political environment. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we have some of that still here at home. So I wouldn't say we're we're at that moment yet. But you're right. There are undertones where some of the patterns today. Right repeat what we had seen in the past. 30 seconds is Jerome Powell's central banker to the world and to all these butterflies out there with tensions and realities? Uh, whether he likes it or whether not. Whether he likes it yes. or not, absolutely. Yes. I think it's way underplayed, Lisa. I think, you know, the actions that we're looking at in the United States, including tangentially this debt ballet we're going through. Talk about what Alicia Levine was talking about, that if oh, the Fed does yeah. hike rates in June... What happens right. to the dollar? And then how does that sort of disrupt the rest of the world and their economic uh, policies? Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, Dr. Gapin's entourage folks, they said he can't talk the debt ceiling. I mean, when he came in, he just said, you know, that's he's not going there. Well, apparently it's true. like passing a kidney stone. <laughs> a paddling <laughs> job. Yeah, a paddling That's a great job. comment. I'm yeah. like, that, That's, Libby, that was perfect. Passing you know, a kidney stone. Well, we, we've had a lot to do. We've done, we've done Law and Order. We've done sports shows. And now we're doing Dr. Kildare. <laughs> I, I guess so. Mike, yeah, Michael Gapin, thank you so thank much. You. Thank Bank you. Thank you. Bank of America uh, Securities. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha 
for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Christopher Marinak joins us right now. Chris, you know, it's an honor to have you on, and thank you so much for your coverage here through this crisis. But the bottom line is, we're all watching this as theater. You actually know these people. Let's talk about Mr. Shea and Signature Bank, which your shop covered as well. First of all, were you surprised they went down the tubes? I was surprised because I think that they had enough liquidity to stave off uh, the, the, the first couple of days. Um, I think that it was a challenge to understand how many more depositors were going to be behind on um, that Monday, Tuesday, the 13th and 14th of, of March. So the reality was the regulators had uh, little patience after seeing uh, Silicon Valley fail the, the previous Friday. Right. So signature was a surprise, but at the end of the day, uh, there may have been more depositors lined up than we realized behind the scenes. I don't want to dwell on this because I just think it's theater and soap opera, and that's not the purpose of the show. But there is a large part of America that would suggest the senator from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts is onto something here, that the suits and ties should return the bonuses. Should they? Well, in my opinion, the bonuses were made in 2022 and 2021 for just normal business. I think that there could be some penalty for the lack of contingency planning for liquidity. You know, banks are levered 12 to 1, and they just did not fathom that they would see these big concentrated deposits all walk out at the same time. And that, I think, was the mistake made. And there's too many securities invested and too, you know, uh, longer term duration assets on the books. At the end of the day, I think that it was a mistake on many fronts, including the regulators. So I think there's a little bit of blame to go around everywhere. Chris, I'm looking right now at Western Alliance shares at more than 11% in pre-market trading as uh, people get a sense that deposits are coming in the door. They're reporting this now on a weekly basis because it's good news. PacWest shares also up about 11%. I understand that off a very low base, but still, do you think that this is right, that deposit strength in one bank really suggests a stabilization in the entire regime? I think that's accurate. I mean, we have seen much more stable deposit flows from the weekly Fed data all throughout this saga since March. So deposits are down four and a half percent year to date. We're down six and a half from the peak in 2022. The reality is we're normalizing in terms of deposits and, and uh, funding mix in the industry. I don't really see big disintermediation. It's only a short term indicator that money market funds are up and deposits are down. We still have deposits, you know, 28, 29 percent higher today than they were at the end of 2019. I think there's the opportunity for deposits that left at PacWest and left Western Alliance to come back. I think the market's uh, trying to, to ascertain that. And I think there are positive days ahead for both of those companies. Let's say things have, have stabilized, Chris. You talk about the pretty massive distortion that occurred when you did see all of these deposits, I think trillions of dollars flood into the system all at once. There is a question of where those deposits were deployed. Was it commercial real estate? Was it uh, loans to companies that might be faltering at this point? How much, even if there is stabilization, there is still a very big problem on the books of some of these research banks. So we really saw loans grow very little in 2020 and 2021. It was only in 22 that <clears throat> loans started to grow. 
And a lot of the growth came in mortgages, it came in CNI loans, and it did come in commercial real estate, but I think it's been very muted in terms of the pace of growth in the past year. So we've seen overall loans up about 17% uh, during this time frame and beginning to use mm -hmm. the deposits. What I find really interesting is that loan to deposit ratios are 71% today for the industry, up from 60 at the bottom, and that compares to a long-term average since the early 70s of 82%. And we were, I think, around 76, 77 prior to the pandemic. So we're still coming back. I don't right. think the leverage in the industry has anywhere near where it used to be. Chris, sell side buy, outperform, single best buy, whatever the ballet is, is up 20, up 30%. You basically have a double or more than double on some of these selected banks right now. They're going to go into this year, next year, and the following year. Am I right? Is smaller institutions describe how their share price does a double off a bank that's going to be smaller than it was in 2019? Sure. So it starts, Tom, at tangible book value. So if you look at tangible book, it's 17 to 18 dollars a pack west. Um, that company is trading at a, a woeful price to book today. It can come back. We think book is actually going to rise with retained earnings. So that ratio comes off of the, the 25, 30% level and heads towards 50 and then eventually 60 and 70. And Western Alliance is a slightly higher stock, but still at a discount to book by a pretty meaningful way. And that's why we right. think it, it could come back as well. Um, this mirrors 2009 when you had stocks like Fifth Third and the old SunTrust and Huntington Bank that are trading less than 50% of book and then they end up raising capital for TARP at a higher level, and then they traded much higher at the end of 2009. So, you know, we've seen this movie before. The volatility is very high today, but it does work both ways. And we think banks are just going to continue to put one foot in front of the other, have a profitable second quarter. We think that the uh, overall mark-to-market issue is going to start to wane slightly. It's not going to resolve itself all the way because the Fed hasn't lowered rates yet, but it is getting better each quarter. Are they going to be smaller institutions or do they grow at some factor of American nominal GDP? Sure. So for the PacWest and Western alliances, I think that they will shrink somewhat because the deposits are lower than they were at the end of March and certainly at the end of 2022. For the rest of the banks, I think you're going to see them more flat to growing at about 1%. I think that if we have a recession and GDP contracts, obviously, I think you will see a little bit of contraction, mm -hmm. but I think it's very modest. Um, you know, the liquidity in the industry is very high and it's better today than it was when this began in March. So I think the banks are in a really good spot and I think there's still credit demand and, you know, inflation tends to be good for business because customers need to, to borrow more as they have a higher price level for their goods and services. That said, Chris, I do wonder, especially if you say you'd put some of the blame with the regulators that they perhaps, and I'm extrapolating here, I'm putting words in your mouth, so please feel free to correct me. They didn't stress test against a massive rise in rates to the same degree that a lot of people said that they should have. There is a question of whether you're going to see this delineation between the PNCs of the world, the U.S. banks, the uh, region's banks, the larger, the sort of mid-size, uh, larger uh, mid-size banks really move away from some of the others and leave the others in a bit more uh, world of hurt? I disagree with that because I think there's lending opportunities all across the spectrum from community banks that serve their customers really well and are a, a, a key you know, uh, piece of the puzzle for, for giving advice. I think as you move up to midsize and larger companies, they can do the same. Um, all of these banks have good capital and good reserves. I think they could use more as we go through the cycle. I think some banks will raise capital to kind of create a sign of confidence, 
perhaps fill in the bucket from the unrealized security losses. But I think that can be done from a position of strength. It doesn't have to be forced on these companies today. But I think you're still going to see them lend and still see them expand. And they're going to be ultra conservative. There's no question that there's a credit crunch today. I just think it's going to be a more measured approach. And overall, mm -hmm. leverage in the, the industry is very low today. Christopher Marinak, thank you so much. And thank you for the many appearances through this uh, crisis. He's with Jenny Montgomery and Scott. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.